Oftentimes I uh, begin a sermon sharing a story or illustration that kind of connects with the main passage, kind of call it a, a hook. Um, this morning I'm going to begin not with a, a story or illustration, but by stepping back to look at a major theme that runs throughout the Bible. Uh, it's a bit like reading a good book or, or watching a movie. Uh, if you pay attention from the beginning to the end, you see specific themes that make up the main idea throughout the book or movie. Unless you fall asleep in the middle, then you don't know what happens. When we, when we do this to the Bible, we call it biblical theology. And I want to step back because I, I want to show you, by the time I'm done this morning, how you fit into this grand narrative or theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. So I'm going to begin broadly with a grand theme or a grand narrative, and as this message progresses, I'm going to narrow in on you this morning. And so that you clearly understand my intentions, I'm going to let the proverbial cat out of the, out of the bag and tell you where I'm going to end this sermon. Here it is. This is where I'm leading you. I want you, everyone here in this room, I want you to see that all Christians, that you are called to participate in God's mission to advance the gospel by serving and sacrificing for Christ. We're called to advance the gospel by serving and sacrificing for the work of Christ. That's where I'm headed, so no, no shocking ending. You know where I'm going. But now that you know where I'm headed, let me begin by seeing how this, how this particular statement fits into the greater theme this morning. I need to begin in the Garden of Eden and in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. After the creation of the world, that's Genesis 1 and 2, we read about the moment when sin entered the world. Perhaps you remember a familiar story here. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, a place that God designed for their enjoyment which includes eating from the tree of life. But there is one tree that grew fruit which was off limits, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. During the course of events, a serpent enters the picture, and it appears the serpent has one goal, to get Adam and Eve to desire and eat what God had forbid. The serpent, as many of you know, was successful. And sin entered Eden and the world because Adam and Eve disobeyed God. But God, who is just because of his holiness and also loving, hands down the consequences for sin along with the way forward to be freed from sin. The Lord delivers his message to Adam and Eve, but it's God's message to Satan which reveals the promise of God's loving plan of redemption. I'm going to read that part for you. Here's Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of, the, beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now notice the pronoun change. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his 
heal. This last verse, verse 15, is key. Right after sin entered the world, God promised that an offspring of Eve would come to crush the head of the serpent, which I do take to be Satan. This promise of a conquering Savior is continually affirmed throughout the Old Testament. Sin entered the world, yet God promised a way forward for his people to be redeemed from the power and penalty of sin. So that's past. It's Genesis. Now, let me jump forward to the future. Again, I'm trying to create a grand narrative throughout all of Scripture. Let's go to the future, to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I want to explain everything in this passage. Pastor Rick will do that when we jump into Revelation next week, Lord willing. But as I read this passage, think about what happened in Genesis 3 and how one day everything sinful and broken will be restored. In other words, we know what happened and we also know where we are headed. There will be a day when Eden will be restored. Here's what we read in the last chapter of the Bible. The Apostle John tells us this. Again, think of Genesis 3. Then the, angel of the, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So the tree of life, which shows up in Genesis, will once again show up in our future. In other words, we are living, in a sense, between two gardens right now. There's more to this grand narrative. In between these two gardens, God fulfilled his promise, remember Genesis 3, to crush the head of Satan. That happened when God the Father sent God the Son to save his elect people from their sin and also reconcile saved sinners to a loving and holy God. Just one passage. There's a myriad of passages we can go to. Here's just Mark 8, which took place between the two gardens. Mark records of Jesus And he, Jesus, began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Crucifixion. And three days later, rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus is the one, many of you know, who knew that he was on mission to crush the head of Satan by dying on a cross and then three days later rise from the grave. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus isn't sitting idly in heaven. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is always working to save his elect people to himself. And in God's perfect timing, Jesus will come back to fulfill Revelation 22. Now, I mention all this because This major theme in the Bible tells us how God redeems his elect people and how he uses people like you and me to declare his loving plan of redemption to the nations. 
This is why between these two gardens, we have another passage from Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we, the church, live in light of and in knowledge of the cross. Therefore, this passage from Matthew 28 begins to narrow the focus for us a bit more. God is calling his church to be active in his grand story of redemption, not passive participants. We are supposed to be be active participants. And he intends to use his church for his redemptive mission until Revelation 22 is fulfilled. And yet, I can narrow the focus even more this morning, specifically in how we are to participate in God's mission. So started out here. Now, in a sense, I am I'm right here on you and me this morning. This leads me to the text that I want to put a spotlight on this morning. Today's passage, the primary passage I'm going to focus on, reminds me that God uses people like you and me to accomplish his plan to redeem his elect people through the proclamation of the gospel. While the salvation of souls is the work of the Holy Spirit, only God can save, God still intends to use his people to constantly scatter gospel seeds. He uses us locally and he sends us Globally, ordinary people, which I include myself to be a part of. Ordinary people could do great things for the Lord. And so I want us to see from Philippians 2 some of the characteristics, what I, what I think is just an ordinary guy who just desired to be used by God through his local church for the advancement of the gospel. It's a passage that seems so mundane, you might have read right past it in your devotions. I know I have. Yet it is encouraging and challenging. There's nothing flashy about the individual we're going to read about. He's, my words, he's just a dude who desired to be used by God. I'll begin to read in verse 19, but I'm going to spend the majority of my time between verses 25 and 30. Here's the text that I want us to put a spotlight on this morning. Paul says to the Philippian church, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more 
eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word of the Lord. Let me reset the scene for you here. We know from extra-biblical material, it's likely Paul, when he writes this letter, is in prison in Rome. Accompanying Paul are his friends, as we read, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul says Timothy and Epaphroditus are serving with him for the advancement of the gospel. We are well acquainted with, Tif- with Timothy. Uh, Paul penned two letters to his protege, First and Second Timothy. And we read in Acts where Timothy joined Paul in his missionary journeys. Paul even says of Timothy in today's passage, For I have no one like him. Paul has only good things to say about his mentee. We read that in the future, Paul plans to send Timothy to Philippi, presumably to encourage and strengthen that church. But Paul needs Timothy to stay with him until his legal affairs are put in order. He's got to figure out if he's going to get out of prison or not. So he needs Timothy to stay. Instead, Paul is willing to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi, which leads me to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a lesser-known character in the Bible. He was a member of the church in Philippi. It's clear from the passage that this, that he loves his local church, and his local church loves him. We can also tell from his name that he had a unique upbringing. The meaning of Epaphroditus comes from the Greek word Epaphrodite, who is the goddess of love and beauty. One commentator describes the significance of his name this way. And I quote, Epaphroditus' name implies his pagan past, suggesting that at birth his parents had invoked over him the protection of the goddess Epaphrodite. By the grace of of Christ, however, Epaphroditus had been born into a new family and invested with a new identity. Now Paul affirms that he and Epaphroditus are brothers. At some point after being converted, we don't know when, Epaphroditus and Paul developed a gospel-centered working relationship. Uh, We also read from today's passage that Epaphroditus was sent from his local church to go and serve Paul, and then at some point was sent back to Philippi. We know from, frankly, Google Maps, confession, the distance between ancient Philippi and Rome is about roughly 800 miles, but mind you, 800 arduous miles, no trains or planes and cars. And it's within this context of Epaphroditus' life that we concern ourselves this morning. One more point about Epaphroditus and why I felt drawn to look at his life this morning. I've already said it. Seemingly, it seems, especially when we read the Bible, that Epaphroditus is kind of an ordinary guy. He's kind of nondescript. We don't have much information about him. He he didn't write letters that appear in the Bible. We don't have extra-biblical evidence to suggest he was some superstar missionary. While we can read about extraordinary individuals in the Bible, like Paul and Timothy, and praise God for them, 
this passage does show us that God uses people like, like Epaphroditus to reach the nations with the gospel. And so I want us to see and read what it looked like for this nondescript guy to be sent by his local church while also looking at some of the characteristics that Paul identified in his friend. I think we have a lot to learn from Epaphroditus. So as we dig a bit deeper into the text, here's three headings that you can follow this morning. Just three easy ones. And it's actually alliterated, which never happens with me. Ready? Sent, serve, and sacrifice. Sent, serve, and sacrifice. So we'll begin with sent. Let's look at that from today's passage. When it comes to a person being sent out for the sake of the gospel, oftentimes it takes two parties to be involved in the process, an individual or a collective group and the local church. For example, our partnership with Training Leaders International is an example of local churches temporarily sending pastors from our region to train other pastors around the world who don't have the resources or training that we have. In this situation, pastors leave the local church and come back in relatively short order. While Epaphroditus has gone for a much longer period of time, this is, is what we read in verses 26 and 28. Here it is again. For he, Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Verse 28 now. I'm the more eager, Paul says, to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. In these verses, it's clear that Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, which implies that this church initially sent him. The implication is made clear in Philippians 4.18. Paul says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. The connection between Epaphroditus and the Philippian church is also described by Paul's use of the word longing in verse 26. Epaphroditus longed to see his friends at Philippi. His longing should not be thought of as like being homesick. Paul isn't sending Epaphroditus without, he ain't sending him back without fulfilling his mission. He's committed to the mission of God, the mission that God placed in front of him. His longing to be with his sending church is the same as Paul's longing to see the Philippian church. Paul uses the same Greek word in chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, for God is my witness how I yearn or how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So this translated word in verse 8 and now verse 26 of chapter 2 is the same Greek word. It describes this intense desire to be and see and hang out and fellowship with someone. And this makes my point all the more. Epaphroditus was willing to be sent out by God for the sake of Christ, which meant leaving the people he loved, leaving the people he had worshipped with, and perhaps leaving the church that he got saved in. He had great affection for his friends back home. And, but he was, he, was, he was a guy who was just willing to be sent out by God to leave everyone that he loves for the advancement of the gospel. So I think the applicable question for all of us is this. If God were to say to you, go, and this meant leaving loved ones behind, how would you respond? It's hard, right? Let that linger as I continue to unpack this 
text. In addition to Epaphroditus' willingness to be sent, the Philippian church was willing to send. It says in verse 28 that the Philippian church will rejoice at seeing their friend back in the local church. This suggests that it must have been hard for this local church to send one of their own, a friend they loved. But they still did it because they saw the advancement of the gospel as more important than the local advancement. It was, it was just as important. We've got to do both. So we're going to send one of our loved ones out. As I, as I pondered this, this came to mind. So browsed enough church websites where I've always wondered how can churches have so many missionaries and some churches not as much. When I've evaluated local churches' global missions program, I've stopped asking how many missionaries have been sent and I started asking what are their missionaries doing? I would rather send two gospel-driven, Christ-proclaiming missionaries like Epaphroditus than 20 Christian expats with a job in a foreign country, although that's fine. I'm talking about the role of a sending church. Give me two Epaphroditus's, over 200 missionaries, pardon me, 200 expats, because I know what they're about. I know what they want to do. And as a local church, we want to send We've got to keep the main thing the main thing when we talk about global missions. Local churches need to be committed to sending missionaries who are dedicated to living out Matthew 28 and make disciples of Jesus Christ. This may include various ministries of mercy, but even in that, the main thing must stay the main thing. The gospel is always the chief priority. When the gospel is not the primary point of global missions, you miss the reason for global missions. So, as a local church, yes, we want to send missionaries. That's why I've asked you to take that handout and put it in your Bible and pray for those organizations and the people within those organizations. But we support them because they are all about advancing the gospel. So that was send or sent. Now let's look at service from today's text. Let's look at how Epaphroditus served for the sake of the gospel. Here's verse 30 again. It says, for he nearly died, that is, Paphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There's two points I want to make about Epaphroditus' service for the gospel. First, he served on behalf of his sending church. When Paul says that Epaphroditus served because there was a lack in the Philippian church, he's not saying the Philippian church lacked in giving enough money or gifts or people. Paul is simply saying that Epaphroditus served him well on behalf of the Philippian church. Paul knows that the entire church isn't going to come to Rome and care for his needs while he's in jail. Paul wouldn't want that because he wants a local church to be a beacon of light in Philippi. But Epaphroditus served a unique role by expressing his love and care to Paul on behalf of his sending church. It's as if the local church was caring for Paul through Epaphroditus. This is no different than what Lily Fulhardy is doing right now in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. She is a sent missionary through Anchor of Hope from Sovereign Grace Church who is doing a gospel work that we cannot do in person. 
We sent her out to serve kids on the streets in Santa Cruz. Lily is sharing the love of God with them, offering hope in the midst of hopelessness, speaking light in places where the devil is raining down darkness. She goes with our blessing, our prayers, and our financial support. And here's what I love about Lily and Jessa and Ellie Veldheisen for that matter. They're not naive to the very practical needs of the street kids in Santa Cruz. They love the gospel, but they're not naive to that either, right? For example, they need socks. Kids in Santa Cruz, Bolivia need socks. Think about that. Our problem is we can't match our socks. They're just trying to find them. It's a basic need we take for granted. And so these ladies are representatives of Acre Hope, and they're strategizing about how to get these kids socks. But here's what I love about them. They still keep the main thing, the main thing. These ladies know the souls of these kids hang in the balance, and more than anything, these kids need to hear the gospel and be saved by the gospel. I I love, I can celebrate non-gospel humanitarian work around the world. I can do that. Feeding the poor, clean water. I can celebrate that, thank God. But as a church, the gospel is always the chief priority. Between the two gardens, these folks, Lily, Ella, Ellie, Jessa, are doing everything they can to proclaim the love of Christ and to display the love of Christ in global missions. So they not only serve in our behalf, but they serve a particular need that we cannot physically do. The same was true for Epaphroditus. But here's what we can learn from this passage, this particular point. We are all together, we are all in this together, serving in different capacities. And when you step back and say, are we willing to serve Christ? You will quickly see what it means to sacrifice. So we're doing it together. We're serving Christ together. We're ascending church or we're a person who sent out. But if we say we're willing to serve, then we realize it means sacrifice, which is my third S. Epaphroditus and the Philippian church were willing to sacrifice for the work of Christ. The Philippian church was willing to sacrifice finances for the work of Christ, and Epaphroditus was willing to sacrifice his own life for the work of Christ. It says in verse 26, Epaphroditus was ill, and in verse 30, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his his life. We don't know when Epaphroditus got sick, but there's no mistake that he was willing to sacrifice his life for Jesus. Once again, here's what commentator Dennis Johnson says about Epaphroditus' sickness. Epaphroditus' sickness invaded his life precisely because he was following Jesus, transporting an expression of Jesus' love from Jesus' people in Macedonia to Jesus' servant Paul in Rome. True, no human persecutor was hunting Epaphroditus down, but the price that Epaphroditus paid to bring support to Paul was suffering for Jesus' sake, as surely as were the scars on Paul's back from the beating at Philippi, which is recorded in Acts 16. What we learn from the Philippian church and Epaphroditus is that sacrifice 
is part and parcel of Christian mission. If the American church is going to advance the gospel, it's going to take more sacrifice. We live in a country that focuses so much on security and savings, we lose sight of what, should, what we should be willing to sacrifice for the advancement of the gospel. Many Christians are not even asking the question, am I willing to sacrifice all that I have, even my life, for Christ? So what, I, what I'm not saying is that you should be irresponsible in how you handle your life or your finances or your possessions, etc. What I am saying is, are you willing to give it all up because there is a higher priority than your life, your finances, your preferences, your time, etc.? Matthew 13, 44 sums up well how I think Epaphroditus lived and how we need to live. Jesus said to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered it up, found this treasure, covered it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. John Piper said of the man in this verse, the extent of his sacrifice and the depth of his joy display the worth he puts on the treasure of God. We're the most prosperous country in all of history. You know that. And yet, we need to be more willing to sacrifice all that we have in order to buy the field where the kingdom treasure is hidden. We've got to do more. And we are called by God to sacrifice joyfully because the treasure is more viable than anything else. And dare I say, yes, I dare, even your life, my life. I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this to myself again. Gotta stop living the American dream. It's gonna cut at a nerve, cuts at my nerve. Gotta stop living the American dream and instead live with, live with a radical kingdom mentality which is willing to sacrifice it all for the work of Christ. Too much gospel work isn't getting done because the church is, I, uses the American dream as an idol. Epaphroditus lived the opposite of the American dream. He traveled from Philippi to Rome for the work of Christ, and what we do know about his specific works weren't all that great. Uh, he took money from Philippi to Rome, and then from Rome to Philippi, he took a scroll that would eventually become, presumably, the book of Philippians. And yes, he was a companion of Paul while in Rome, and surely Epaphroditus did more than what is described in here in our passage, but let's be honest, being a courier for the church at Philippi and for Paul isn't the most exciting story to tell. Here, take this, go over there. Here, take this, go over there. It's not exciting. And yet Epaphroditus was willing to sacrifice his life because that is what God called him to do. His dream, as it were, was to see the gospel go forth and see souls saved from Hell. While Epaphroditus was seemingly, I think, an ordinary guy, he was willing to do extraordinary work for the advancement of the gospel. 
we all need to be willing to be sent by God, serve for God, and sacrifice for God, just like Epaphroditus was willing to be sent, serve, and sacrifice for God. But a willing heart to be sent, serve, and sacrifice does not always mean God will use you the same way he used Epaphroditus, or know that. For most people here, the calling to serve and sacrifice is, is right here at Sovereign Grace Church, part of this church family. God is calling you to, to participate in the sending, the sending out. Again, look at Philippians 4.18 because it's instructive for telling us the role of the local church in missions. I have received full payment, Paul says, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The Philippian church, like Epaphroditus, sacrificed for the advancement of the gospel. The sacrifice looked different, but this is how God can use the local church. It's how he does use the local church. The people in the church have different gifts and are called by God to use their gifts for the work of Christ. And this means using gifts sacrificially. It's because of Philippians 2, you know, 12 to 30, and Philippians 4.18 that I'm not ashamed to ask as a pastor, or just as a Christian, to people, are you willing to sacrifice more of your time for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to sacrifice more of your money for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to uproot your family and go somewhere new for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing? You, brothers and sisters, you, brothers and sisters, are the means which God wants to use to see people hear the gospel in all tribes, tongues, and languages, to know Christ and Him crucified. He wants to use you, the church, whether it's in Bolivia, Des Moines, Burnsville. All of God's people are called to actively participate in the advancement of the gospel. We can look to Epaphroditus, but more importantly, we can look to the one that Epaphroditus worshipped, believed in, had faith, had faith in, and was willing to die for. I'm going to end my sermon with just two points here. Two points. One's going to be very practical, and the other one's going to be more biblical. It's both biblical. <laughs> practical. Then we go point us back to the Bible. First, if you're trying to discern a calling from God to be sent out by your local church, pray that God give you greater faith in Him for whatever lies ahead. Be devoted to prayer. Fast and pray. Get on your knees. I've asked God for greater faith in my own life. I've had lots of questions about planning a church in Des Moines, Iowa. Important questions. But throughout the process, I've had to simply ask God for greater faith despite not having all the answers right away. This isn't the same as planning a church or going somewhere with unanswered questions while not asking God for faith. That would be foolish. If you're trying to discern a call from God to global missions, you are wrestling with God in a similar way. Pray to God for greater faith to discern the path ahead and invite your local church into the conversation, and to pray with you about that. We keep the two connected. The sender and the sent. Gotta keep them connected. 
And if you're part of ascending church, most of you here, be excited about sending others out who are passionate about the gospel. Your role is also important for advancing the kingdom of God, as I trust you've seen from Philippians 2 this morning. And last, and this is for everyone here, we need to not only look to Epaphroditus as an example for the one who was sent out to serve and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, we need to look at the example of Christ. I hope it's not lost on you that as we've looked at the life of Epaphroditus just briefly this morning, just several verses earlier in Philippians 2, we read of the ultimate example of the great one who was sent to serve and sacrifice himself for the sake of others. Epaphroditus was simply following in the footsteps of his Savior. I pray that we would do the same thing. So I'm going to end by reading some of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. And you will hear a sent one who served and who sacrificed. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That was Epaphroditus, by the way. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus was sent to earth on mission to serve and sacrifice himself by dying on a cross so that his people could be ransomed from sin and reconciled to a loving and holy God. He rose from the grave and defeated death and now reigns in heaven, awaiting the day to fulfill Revelation 22. Until that day, church, until that day, we are called to tell everyone about the good news of Jesus Christ. Between these two gardens, that is what we are called to do, whether that's in Burnsville or across this world. That's what we exist for. We tell and then we glorify God for the work that he is doing through us for his glory. That's why we do it.